Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Dig Insights. Using decision science, Dig Insights helps researchers at the world's most well-loved brands drive growth in crowded categories. Their work is supported by proprietary technology, including Upside, the only ResTech platform exclusively built to test and optimize innovation. Learn more at diginsights.com. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy, and welcome to another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend it with myself and my guest. And today, my guest is Lauren Drake, Consumer Insight Strategist from Public Supermarkets. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Lenny. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Uh, It's great to have you. As we were chatting a little bit beforehand, um, I shared as everybody is sick of hearing me talk about my move from Atlanta to Kentucky. But this is one of those times where in Atlanta, there were lots of public supermarkets and there are none here in Kentucky currently. And I definitely miss that. So this is kind of my, my public's fix sure. with you today. Understandable. I have that myself too. Yeah. <laughs> now, are you in Florida? I am in central Florida, actually. The, the map behind me here, which probably our audience can't see, but is a map of uh, Florida shipwrecks throughout the centuries. So I'm here in central Florida in Lakeland where Publix is actually headquartered. I'm actually across the street from our headquarters and have lived in Lakeland for about 10 years now. That is a great area. Now our shipwrecks, is that a uh, is that an area of interest for you? Do you dive? Well, it, I've always been interested in maritime history. And then just the state of Florida is always, has a lot of fascinating history as well. And the idea that Somebody went through the trouble of plotting, you know, where ships actually were either captured or capsized or taken over by pirates is kind of a fascinating thing. And and this map here, you can't see it, but it basically shows where ships went down in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries for a variety of different reasons. And and, uh, the map shows a lot of them. So I think it's just an interesting reminder of the history of the state where I live. Yeah. Uh, it is a uh, Florida is a great state. Maybe maybe sometimes we we can have you come back and we can just talk about the you know pirates and shipwrecks and and uh, maritime history because uh, oh, absolutely I'd be happy to. Uh, there's there's a different topic, uh, Natalie, our producer. Let's let's put that on the list. No research at all, just history. That's right. All right, happy to participate. Okay, so Lauren, for folks who don't know you, want you to tell yeah. us a little bit about your background and your bio. Sure. Just yeah, just a little bit. So. I've got about um, 25 years of experience in, in marketing and advertising. I I cut my teeth um, working for. Used to live in the mid in the upper Midwest in in Minnesota, working for a media company there in a newspaper, working in the marketing department. Then went to work for an ad agency in Minneapolis. Worked there for eight years. My biggest biggest account there was Target. That's where I cut my teeth in retail. I did. I was a research manager there, doing consumer research specifically for Target. Back in the day when Target was starting to get called Target, and we were basically putting our our tagline at the time was "Expect more, pay less," and we were 
creating a lot of surprises for our customers by putting upscale items like a toaster designed by Michael Graves, the famous architect who did the Washington Monument, putting them inside a Target store, things you would not expect from a discounter. So I had the Target account. You may have heard of the Sleep Number Bed. That was another one of my accounts. We did infomercials with Lindsay Wagner, of all people. I worked on Stonyfield Farm Yogurt, Johnsonville Bratwurst out of Wisconsin, some really, really great brands in CPG and retail. I cut my teeth there, then left there and went, uh, did a couple of years as a management consultant working on basically customer satisfaction and voice of the customer programs for a number of kind of blue chip companies, financial sector, retail sector as well. Really love that. It's the idea of walking into an organization and having to meet with their CEO or C-suite and having to sort of instantly establish credibility with them. You've got about 30 seconds for them to decide if they're going to like you or trust you and do business with you. So that was an interesting experience that a lot of traveling studied under a very well-respected consultant, and then went to work for Harris Interactive, where I was a loyalty researcher, doing a lot of research on customer loyalty, like why do customers stay? Why do they leave? Worked in the financial sector. I did insurance, banking, also did some, some work for Disney did a global study with Pfizer on Viagra, of all things, which was really interesting, kind of dabbling in healthcare, trying to understand the, the unmet needs of people throughout the, throughout the world as, it comes to, as, as that drug was gaining in prominence. And then after that, I decided I was tired of winters and moved to Tampa, Florida, worked for a boutique consulting firm there, and ultimately decided that I wanted to be on the client side. So the work, the job I have at Publix, I've been there 10 years now. I'm in Consumer Insights, and it's, I like to say that it combines all the best parts of my previous job. So I get to dabble in marketing, media research, consumer research, primary research, strategy, and advertising. So the, the job I have now, I, I love it because it combines all the things I've loved about all the jobs I've had previously. That makes sense. It does. And that was a great bio. A lot of, uh, a lot of company names that made me smile each time, including Target. Yes, back in the day. Uh, another uh, another store that is not close to me anymore, which my wife holds against me. But anyway, we won't get into all of that. All right, so that's great background. And at IX North America in Austin this year, you talked about generative AI, the you know the, the the buzz topic of the day, with a great presentation titled "Generative AI in the Researcher's Toolbox." Friend foe or friend me. So now we're a few months out from Austin. Have you determined yet? Is it friend, foe, or friend of me? What's your take? Yeah, no hesitation. Definitely a friend. I know there's there's anxiety and I know that not everyone is happy about AI and there's certain sectors that are impacted. I don't mean to be insensitive to actors and writers. I was just watching on CNN this morning you know, the writer strike in Los Angeles. So I definitely want to be sensitive to those people who are being negatively impacted by AI and I don't want to be cavalier about it. But speaking from somebody who works in consumer insights, understands consumers and needs to understand consumer behavior and does research for a living, I'm going to say friend just because the um, corollary I like to use is that 
I'm old enough to remember when the internet came along. I still remember my first day on the World Wide Web and just kind of my head exploding with the possibility of all that this was going to make happen for us. Back in when I started in this business, we did all of our research over the phone. I used to travel to our call center in Lincoln, Nebraska, and meet with the survey agents, our field agents, who would conduct all of our customer satisfaction surveys over the phone. And I would have briefings with the phone room. And so when the internet came along, it was a very similar sentiment where people were poo-pooing it. They were saying, oh, we'll never do surveys online. The, the population isn't there. It's just a bunch of teenage boys or adult men living in their parents' basement, you know, coding online. And so I'm not bragging here, but I was one of the first people to sort of embrace the internet as a tool for data collection. And so I see this time as very similar. I see AI as another tool in our toolkit. And just like anything else, if you use it responsibly, it will work for you and it will do wonderful things. But to quote a line from one of my favorite movies, you know, Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. So we have to use it responsibly, ethically, morally, legally. But overall, to answer your question, Lenny, I would say that AI is going to be a friend, at least in my discipline and my line of work. So that's great. Uh, and I think that my, my head is in the same place now. I wasn't sure, uh, like many, but now I think we're in, in an area or a time of pragmatic application. And we're discovering all of those tools that just the, the benefits are obvious. I, I, there was actually a discussion board that I was on this morning and folks were asking for prompts to utilize ChatGPT for netting open ends, for analyzing and netting open ends, and utilizing just ChatGPT itself versus you know the many suppliers out there, you know Yabble, Canva, et cetera, et cetera, that are doing that for uh, for coding, which is just a no brainer application. So of, of course you know it's going to be a friend. Now on that note, you talk a lot about NLP. And of course, that's kind of a foundational first generation aspect of what we think about as generative AI now. I think it's, I think of generative AI as NLP on steroids. So can you talk a little bit about, especially from that client side perspective on how you were embracing these tools over time? You've talked about the internet and, you know, yeah, I've, I've yeah. been in the industry 23 years. So right there with you, you know, I've seen yeah. that, that evolution, but Talk a little bit about how you've been following this progression of solutions over the years till now, right? Where we have this latest iteration of innovation through through generative AI. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I stay in consumer insights and marketing research was is because of the the rapid rate of change, right? So I started in this business, as I said, really pre-internet. I know that makes me sound like a dinosaur, but I'm actually okay with that. If anything, I, I have the history, so I have the context, I think. And and so, you know, having done a lot of paper surveys, you know, um, even number two pencils, having done a lot of telephone surveys and all those kinds of things, I think it's been fun to watch the evolution of the industry and having the industry embrace technology. So take unstructured data, for example. And when I say unstructured data, I'm referring to all of the the noise around what people say, right? All the spoken spoken language, whether it's through qualitative research or open-ended comments and surveys, not structured data, which would be on a scale of one to five, you know, how would you rate your local Costco or whatever the case might be? In this case, it's unstructured data 
which is messy, right? Unstructured data is messy. It's it's people speaking. It's all of the intonations that they use. It's the uhs and the ums. It's the them thinking out loud. It's them not articulating themselves well. You have to kind of cut through all that noise to get at the insight. And so back in my day, it was all about manual coding. It was all, I had to look at open ends from surveys and I had to manually code them in Excel, group them, lump them together thematically, and then decide, oh, these 600 quotes are about customer service. These 600 quotes are about product quality. And these 800 quotes are about store hours, you know? And so I had to do that manually and I've spent way too many hours doing that. And so the excitement for me to answer your question, I guess, directly is, what we can do with NLP, with machine learning, and of course now AI. You know, to give you an example that kind of brings that to life is, I was at a conference and uh, there were some people there from from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, of course, and they were talking about how they um, one of the projects that they were working on was basically a blender that can be bought, purchased on Amazon. It's just basically a blender, but just like anything else on Amazon, you get hundreds and hundreds of reviews. And so they use machine learning, but really AI, to comb through those reviews and find really the top three pain points. And this is something that, yes, you could read them, but because there are hundreds and hundreds of reviews, the machine was able to find something different than the human eye was able to. And so they reported this back to the manufacturer. They made these three changes. And as a result, their reviews went up at least a point on Amazon. So they gained, you know, they gained at least a point in terms of positive reviews. And so I think to me, that's the kind of the holy grail of, of insight, right? Trying to extract both emotion, sentiment, but really quickly comb through the reviews. I've, I've noticed now that when I'm on Amazon, they're no longer just posting all the reviews. They post a review summary. So if you're looking at a product on Amazon, I just recently bought a helmet for my scooter and I didn't have to read all the reviews. There was a summary at the top. And so that summary at the top said, customers who purchase this helmet generally find it to be well-fitting. They find it to be comfortable. The ventilation works well, but occasionally the visors fog up. There it is. That's all I needed to know. So that to me is the power of insight and the power of using synthetic intelligence to quickly mine lots and lots and lots of unstructured data for insight. Something that would take me as an individual researcher hours, if not days, if not weeks to do of painstaking, laborious research that AI can do. And and so some people, you know, will ask me, well, Lauren, is your job is just going to be replaced. I vehemently do not believe that. I always will. In my line of work, I always believe we will need people to, um, we still need people to, to present the data, right? Last time I checked, AI wasn't able to give presentations. We still have to decide what's valuable and what's not to the business, right? So I work for a supermarket. I understand the grocery business. Last time I checked, ChatGPT doesn't have intimate knowledge of how the grocery business works. So we still have to be curators and gatekeepers of all that information. AI is just our, the friend, our trustworthy friend, maybe sometimes not trustworthy, but that's another conversation to help us, you know, mine through all that unstructured data and help us make sense of it. Does, does that answer your question, Lenny? It, it does. And I could not agree more, um, nodding emphatically. I ha actually had an experience last week for, that was the first time that I was work talking to a client and they were using an AI meeting assistant. Uh, and automatically, I got a summary of the conversation after the meeting. And I just hadn't personally experienced that yet 
from the standpoint of, okay, here's what we talked about. And it wasn't a transcript. It was a summary of what we discussed, including themes and, and attribution to specific comments. And I, I had to go, damn, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, totally and, agree. And, yeah. and just one of those examples of, wow, in qualitative, that makes qualitative research so much easier to conduct. And I think that you know, we're, we're seeing a scaling of what we would think of as, as qual, the big bucket of qualitative research at this point anyway communities, online focus groups, et cetera, et cetera, because technology's made those things easier. The sticking point or the uh, really the, where the throughput that, that constricted production was in the analysis of the unstructured data. And now that has suddenly been removed in a significant yes. way. So I, I actually think, well, let me ask you a question then instead of putting down my, my thinking. Sure. Uh, within publics, within your role, do you envision deleveraging the survey as a primary instrument and leaning more into qualitative and unstructured data as a means of insight generation because now we can just do it easier than we ever could before? What does that what's that mix look like for you? Yeah, I, actually your your question gave me deja vu and I'll explain why because I had a similar we had similar conversations when social media came along, you know, and and so it was all about, I remember when, you know, Facebook and Twitter, I mean, really those were the two, but then also YouTube and, and Instagram as well came along and I went to conferences and everybody was abuzz about, we don't have to do surveys anymore. We can just do social media listening. And everybody was talking about listening posts and how we can extract all these insights, you know, what people are saying about publics and public subs and, and our products and our customer service. We can get all that from social media and we don't have to do surveys anymore. So the short answer to your question is no, I don't think surveys, I don't think we're going to do any fewer surveys because the, the beauty of, of doing, conducting a surveys is the, the precision of it, right? So you get to pick your population. So that's the other thing you get to pick whatever population you want, whatever subsets, whatever quotas, you can set quotas by, by geography. For example, we have five divisions, you know, so we have a floor, we have three divisions in Florida and we have an Atlanta division and a Charlotte division. So we can set quotas by division and then you can be very precise, you know, on a, so you said you lived in Atlanta, so I can ask you, you know, on a scale of one to five with one being poor and five being excellent, how would you rate your publics when you lived in Atlanta, you know, in terms of overall. And so that type of directed effort that we can do. And then of course, once we have that numeric data, we can run all kinds of advanced analytics on it, right? We can run driver analysis, we can run regression, we can run max diff, and we can use all these different techniques. So I don't think that surveys are, are going to necessarily evolve or change. I do think that we can introduce more open ends into surveys and more unstructured data. And we're looking into that as well, our, our tracking studies in particular. In the past, we've shied away from open ends because what do you do with the mountains of data that you get? You know, you ask, we have 1300 stores and and so you ask people is there anything else that publics can do for you that you're currently not where your needs aren't being met well some people you know even if you give them if you give them 250 characters sure but some people will write a novel in that text box which of course is good but the the problem has always been what do we do with these this mountains of unstructured data and in the not so distant future i believe will be much 
not just Publix, but really any other corporation out there is going to be much better equipped to analyze terabytes of unstructured data in a matter of seconds. So I feel like speed and efficiency and agility, as we scale up, we're, we're going to be able to use qualitative and unstructured data in so much more efficient and exciting ways. So the idea of scaling up that is very exciting to me, but I don't necessarily think it means that we're going to stop doing Likert scales And at the same time. I think Likert scales, somebody said they've been around for more than 80 years. And yes, there are other ways to collect data, but um, you know, you can use a sliding scale like there's an unhappy face on the left and a, an enraged face on the right. And where are you somewhere in between? I've seen those types of scales before, but there's a reason why the Likert scale has been around for more than 80 years, because it's a highly effective way to capture mood and sentiment. And then when you get that from 500 people, you can run all kinds of analytics on that particular number. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Dig Insights. Have you listened to Dig In? It's the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights, designed for brand professionals that crave innovation inspiration. Each week, Dig invites a business leader onto the podcast to spill the beans on the story behind some of the coolest innovations on the market. Search Dig In wherever you get your podcasts. I, I really, really appreciate your, your focus on pragmatic reality. It's easy with this particular topic to, it, it, and it's fun to think about the future and, and what's possible, but you know, fundamentally, we are in the business of asking and answering questions, and what is the most yes. effective way to do that is what is always going to win. So uh, I appreciate you, uh, as I attempt to condense what you said. <laughs> yeah, no no problem. And and these are, these are just opinions. I mean, they can be challenged at any point, and I've, I've had very fiery debates, but always very healthy conversations with other practitioners like yourself in the industry. And and they've had different perspectives. And I, I always say, well, I, I learn more. I, I love it when I get a different different perspective than than my own. And so these are just my opinions. I mean, things could go in a different direction. I'm just excited by the possibility of what we could not do five years ago that we can do today in 2023. And, and I embrace these new methodologies and these new tools, and I'm, I'm not afraid of them. And, and so the worst thing that can happen is that something goes wrong, but then you learn from it, right? So I'm not, I'm not afraid to experiment, and I'm not afraid to try new methodologies. And the employers that I've had, I've, I've always been very fortunate that I've had the support of, of my leadership in terms of their willingness to try new things and, and see what happens. Now that actually leads to a uh, an interesting piece that you presented on, and that is that there is a a, a new a new skill set that's been introduced, and that is prompt engineering. So, what have you picked up? What have you learned about the the wonderful skill of prompt engineering? Yeah, so I guess I I would say you know it's a kind of like the old adage about if you you know I have to, I'm holding a smartphone here. It's my my Galaxy Samsung. S22 Ultra. It's my my trusty sidekick. You know, the joke is that if you know you need to be smart to be able to use a smartphone, right? And so the user needs to be intelligent as well. And so that to me is kind of at the heart and soul of prompt engineering. And that's why there's a there's a cottage industry 
and, and almost like a new skill set. I do remember that when social media, if, again, I keep, keep referring to that, but when social media first came about, all of a sudden the hottest job in America was social media manager, you know, and, and social media listening. And every conference I went to was listening posts. And I think that is, I'm not saying it has fizzled out, but I think that is lessened to some degree as we all accept that social media is part of our life. The idea of prompt engineering, I think, goes back to the fact that up until now, computing has been a very static kind of one-way street in a way. So I go to Google, I type in something. Sometimes what I get is exactly what I need. Sometimes it's way off and it's just kind of trial and effort, but it's a but it's not a two-way conversation. It's a one-way conversation. So as I said it in Austin when I was there, thank you for bringing that up, was to me, ChatGPT and prompt engineering, it feels more like you have a con- you're having a conversation with a trusted friend. So the idea that when I presented in Austin, we talked about an exercise that we went through with, with research where ChatGPT didn't get it right and we had to correct them and they they came back and they apologized, you know? And so the thing I said in Austin was, what's the last time Google apologized to you for lousy search results? And I'm not knocking Google, I, I love the product, I love the company, but it's a different relationship. It's a different, it's a, it's a new beginning, right? And so prompt engineering to me is, it comes back to the old adage of, we talked about this a lot, garbage in, garbage out, right? So your research, your inputs are only, your your answers are only as good as your questions. And so we train our, our CI team at Publix to ask the best possible questions because otherwise you're not going to get the answers you want or that you need. And it all starts with the right questions. So to me, Prompt engineering is about trial and error, and it is artificial intelligence, like anything else, has to be trained, and the end user has to be trained. So going back to my smartphone example, you have to be smart to be able to use a smartphone. You have to be smart to be able to use AI. And so the idea of what we actually did an experiment where we had two different prompts in in designing, uh, doing a survey design, and we changed one word and the results were completely night and day, 100, 100, 300, or 180 degrees different. So it really is about what you put into it. And so it, there's no surprise that the idea that, that companies like Netflix are paying 200,000 starting salary for a prompt engineer, because that is the job of the future. So I don't know, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, I think there's a lot there to unpack. I agree. And it does answer the question. It brings up an interesting idea, though, that I, I don't think I'd really thought about until this conversation. And that is, you know, we've been trained with the, you know, kind of the GUI interface. And I'm thinking the, the example of the discussion board topic that I saw this morning of to utilize ChatGPT specifically to to create a table summarizing nets of themes in open-ended responses. And what was so interesting is, you know, you, you had to describe, here is the output that I want. It's not just a question. It's not just, you know, it's saying, here's the issue. Here's the information that addresses the issue. And here's the output that I want to see at the end, which is a very different way to think about things and in interacting with technology than we've had for the last, you know, 30 years, which is, you know, point, click, or write and not describing the entire the entire process conversationally it's it's really almost a storytelling skill and i think that's just a, a really interesting 
change in mental framework to be able to utilize these tools effectively. Yeah, what what do you think? Yeah, actually, as as you're talking, I'm actually pulling up my phone because I saw something on Twitter this morning that I'm looking for now that I retweeted or I guess reposted now since Twitter is called X, but and it was from OpenAI. So I it's it's actually perfect that you bring it up because they they tweeted, they said our new text to image model Dolly 3 can translate nuanced requests into extremely detailed and accurate images. Coming soon to ChatGPT plus an enterprise which can help you craft analyzing prompts to bring your ideas to life. So here's an example of a prompt. Create an illustration of a human heart made of translucent glass standing on a pedestal amidst a stormy sea. Rays of sunlight pierce the clouds, illuminating the heart, revealing a tiny universe within. The quote, find the universe within you is etched in bold letters across the horizon. That's a very, very specific chat GPT prompt. And so here is the resulting illustration that that wow. Dolly and chat GPT made together. So that's very abstract, but it actually looks very concrete. So think about how does this apply to your regular life, Lenny? So think about you have an idea or a vision and you want to visualize it maybe in PowerPoint and you want to tell your boss about it. Or maybe you want to take it to the CEO of your company and you have this really fantastic idea, but you want to show what it looks like visually. Imagine going into ChatGPT, describing your vision and have Dolly visualize it for you in a diagram. I mean, so it's those kinds of things that I now see on a daily basis that are so mind expanding to the point where you see potential after potential after potential after potential. We will be able, in, in the not-so-distant future, in fact, it's pretty much here now, we will speak into a computer, describe something very abstract, and have the computer return a vision, an image for us that perfectly describes what we're thinking. And that has so many applications. I mean, it has business applications, it has graphic design applications, it has advertising implications. But the fact that it can draw that within seconds is just really remarkable and astounding to me. And I don't think we've, I, I think at this point, we are scratching the surface of what AI is capable of bringing to every single profession and discipline on the planet. Yeah. And I think what's what's interesting about this and thinking of kind of our, our earlier conversation on uh, as an enablement component in the role of humans is what we're talking about is taking human creativity and human intellect, human ingenuity, human intuition, right? All of those kind of ephemeral qualities that happen in in our <laughs> our pcs and our heads and having a tool that allows us to funnel that in a whole new way that, that does not require specific training necessarily I mean, obviously yes the prompt engineering you know but the the ability to to communicate whether in written or in verbal form effectively to describe something, to have a conversation and communicate, you know, what we're thinking and feeling and, and wanting. And for then AI, cause it doesn't create, it just takes what we create and presents it back to us. And maybe if we talk a little more, not necessarily this conversation, but even it, this broadly is a, as a species about this new tool to focus on, look, this is simply a creative enabler. 
you know, this is not something that replaces a human in any way, shape, or form. It is limited to its inputs. Uh, but what it is really good at is if we give it the right inputs, it will give us an output that matches that. And from that perspective, you know, why the hell not would we, would we not be utilizing these tools? Totally agree with you. Uh, okay. Well, that's great. I like it, Lauren, when, when we have guests that we all agree on the same thing. So <laughs> it can be more fun well, when mean, you can, when there's a little contention. I but. guess, I, I guess we're, we're like-minded, but I, I definitely agree with, with everything you've said. And, and also taking a pragmatic approach. I, one of the things I put in my deck in Austin was, and I'll just kind of read it to you. I wrote artificial intelligence can likely match human intelligence and maybe even surpass it but our consciousness cannot be recreated. There's no replicating the human condition. So that's kind of where I draw the line. It's like, I believe in synthetic intelligence. I believe that we can ultimately, potentially maybe pass my time on this planet, but we'll have family members or even synthetic humans who will live alongside of us, kind of like Blade Runner. I believe that that's the reality we're ultimately headed for. I think there's huge implications for creating that, but I do think that that's where AI ultimately will be, where we'll have a friendly companion or think of a butler or somebody who helps you answer questions in your house. Just like we would turn to a smart speaker now, eventually I think we'll have somebody who is in our home, probably run by a corporation, and that's where you start to get into like dystopian sci-fi movies and things like that, where they kind of start to take over. I do feel like that future is a reality for us, but I also think it's a good reminder to know that that consciousness, the feeling of love, the feeling of pain, all the things that make us human, the, the idea of self-awareness, like right now I'm, I'm a sentient being, I'm aware that I'm talking to you, I'm aware that I'm a podcast guest, I'm aware of my surroundings, I sense my temperature around me, I may be feeling thirsty or hungry or may need to go to the bathroom and I'm aware of all those things either at a conscious or subconscious level and that I don't believe can be duplicated and one of the things we have to remember is that we as humans are the creators of all of this so we're the ultimate decision maker I think the 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 sci-fi nerd in me you know asked the question of what happens when the those who create become more powerful than the creator, you know, and that's, that's a much larger question that I possibly cannot answer that people who are infinitely smarter than me are going to have to answer at some point. But I, I guess at the end of the day, even though we're talking about artificial intelligence, what I think is most clear is that my faith in humanity is completely unshakable. I, I believe in the human condition. I believe in the human species. I believe in the human race, and I believe we're capable of anything. And so I may be naive, and I'm willing to, I'll take that on the chin, but I believe that human beings are vastly superior to anything synthetic that we can create ourselves. And someday I might be proven wrong, but until then, I'm going to maintain that position. Well, well well said we are definitely like-minded so lauren we, we need to chat at some point i think that we would have uh Happy not, to. You know, just just kind of bsing so i think there's a lot that we can have fun talking about because i'm a i'm a big sci-fi geek and uh and all of those topics are things that interest me intensely on that note actually i can't think of a better way to end a podcast than on that incredibly uplifting note so so let's kind of wrap up uh is there anything that you wanted to get into that we didn't no, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think uh, I think I just wanted to mention that I think I think if you are in consumer insights or if you're in marketing, 
people who are starting out earlier in their career, you know, I'm 25 years in, I'm closer to retirement than I am to starting my career. But I would say anyone who's starting out and wants a career in consumer insights or marketing, I would say that you're entering at a really exciting time. There's so much to learn. The reason I stay in this business and don't try to find another job in another area is because I learn something new every day. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but it really, really is true. Every single day, I learn something new. I expand my skill set. And so if you are a young person who is considering a career in either marketing, consumer insights, or advertising, I would say this is a fantastic time to embark on a career. The industry has been great to me. And so I definitely want to return the favor and give back to those who gave me a leg up and believed in me when I was younger. So that would be, I guess, the one thing I'd like to convey to you and and to the listeners today. That is, uh, yeah, could not agree more. Again, just <laughs> where's the batico here today, my friend? Uh, Very good. Where, Very good. where can people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I am very active on social media. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Probably the best place is to look me up on LinkedIn. And I have never turned down a connection request. I accept all connection requests. Now, if they start spamming me afterwards or it feels like it's a bot, I'll probably disconnect. But any human being, if you're a human and you are somehow in this industry or even loosely connected to the industry, I will accept a connection request from you. Lauren Drake, it's Lauren with an I. Drake is my last name, and uh, I work for public supermarkets in Lakeland, so I'm pretty easy to find. There we go. Well, uh, hopefully we won't get many AI avatars trying to connect, but, you know. Believe it or not, I've gotten a few. I'm sure you have, too. I, I have as well. I've also seen yeah. I've also seen them in survey responses, but that is a uh, that is a whole other conversation. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. It was a delight. It was my pleasure. We will chat again, I'm sure. Enjoy Florida. And we, uh, we really appreciate your time. And thank you to our producer, Natalie, our editor, James, our sponsor, Dig Insights. And of course, thank you, our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you taking time to spend it with us. That's it for today. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Bye-bye. Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.